Well, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, I just got to remind you, I know you, you probably know this already, but you guys are very blessed. We've spent the better part of the weekend with your church leadership in some of your elders' homes and your pastors' homes, fellowshipping together, eating meals together, and there's a common thread with all of them, and it's to be commended that they love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been evident to all of us that that is their first and primary uh, passion. It's also been evident that they love you guys and desire to equip and train and lead you guys to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also evident my wife and I, Gina, had the privilege of staying with the Karn family. And I want to say this. You are very blessed to have them as your pastors here at Hamilton Baptist Church. Amen. They are the real deal. And uh, they're raising a godly family and love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart and are training their kids that way and have a heart for you and have a heart for the nations. And we appreciate you guys. And I appreciate the privilege here to open the Word of God with you. I was here in October, and I heard Pastor Stephen preach, and I travel a lot, I'm in a lot of churches, and let me remind you or alert you to the fact that you might know this, you might not, but he is one of the most gifted expositors of the Word of God that I've ever heard. And you have him... You have him here following Ephesians 4.12, which is what Equip the Serves based on. God's raised up pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles to equip his saints for the work of ministry. And you have a great example here among you and the, the Karn family. Before we dive in, let's just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we're asking you to cut us today with your word, and that by your spirit you would allow us to put into practice uh, what, what we're reading and studying this morning from the book of Titus, because just having knowledge is not enough, Father. We, we know that we need to act on it, to live it out, to show the world that we've truly been transformed by your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that um, as we open your word today, that you would use it in our lives in a powerful way. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Peter Kuma is one of the church leaders we're, we're privileged to train. The first time that we had the privilege of teaching him. He, he sat there in this makeshift lean-to that had been constructed for the teaching of pastors in Plebo City, interior country of Liberia. 
And it was clear after the first day of teaching when he arrived the second day that something was gnawing at him. Something was bothering him. It looked like he hadn't slept all night. And so in one of the breaks, I sat down beside him and I asked him, Peter, what's wrong? And he told me this. He said, I I just don't see any other way to God than through Jesus Christ. He said, during the war, I did things that I'm not proud to admit. He goes, I'm a murderer, an adulterer, a thief. I can't even begin to tell you all that I've done just to survive the war. He said, it's clear I can only come to Christ and trust in him completely because there's no other way. I can't do enough good to cover the bad that I've done. Christ has done it all for me. Turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3. Today I want to talk about the fact that once you were, but now you are. Once you were a certain way, but now you are. And we're going to look at the book of Titus as our reference this morning. These few verses we'll look at today are in the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus. Let me just set some context here. This book was written around A.D. 63-64, but it's definitely applicable today. Paul wrote to Titus to give counsel as he worked through the problems of a difficult pastorate. In this letter, Paul's reminding Titus that he was left on the island of Crete with a very specific task. And that task was to serve as Paul's representative and set in order the things that were lacking in the churches and to appoint elders in those churches. If we were to read the whole letter this morning, it would be quite obvious the ministry that was before Titus was quite enormous. There were false teachers to be confronted. But his greatest challenge was in promoting good works among the believers based on sound doctrine. Paul certainly did not teach that good works are how we're saved. But the challenge presented in this short epistle is for believers to be zealous for good works. In chapter 1, verse 16, in reference to the false teachers, he says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In chapter 2, verse 7, he tells us to be a model of good works. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says that we need to be a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. In chapter 3, verse 1, we're to be ready to do every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8, be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Verse 14, learn to devote yourself to good works. You see, as a general rule, the Cretans on that island did not have a very good reputation. They were known to be rebellious and lazy. And so as Paul's writing to Titus, and especially those believers on the island of Crete, he wanted to challenge them to hold tightly to sound doctrine that promotes good works among all believers. You see, Paul was very concerned that the word of God would be preached and then it would be blasphemed. 
You see, if the gospel message does not affect the lives of those who believe, Paul knew the negative impact it would have. And it's the same message today. For those of us that claim to know Christ, if that gospel message does not transform us, does not impact our everyday life, the word of God is blasphemed. It should have an impact. And Paul's challenging Titus that God's grace not only provides salvation for all who believe, but also teaches believers how to live in this present age. God's grace doesn't give us license to sin, but it educates us to say no to ungodliness. And Titus was to be committed to proclaiming the truth that all believers should take the lead in doing good works. He taught that faith must come first, but works are to follow. And that's a clear theme as you study the book of Titus. Have you ever wondered why the church is sometimes the last to respond in good works? We have the government stepping in, we have secular organizations stepping in, and then finally the church says, oh, something happened, maybe I should get involved. Paul's challenge to us today is don't lag behind unbelievers and doing good to all. So in order to get his point across, I'm getting to the text here, verse 3 of Titus 3. Paul reminds us that we once were a certain way. Paul reminds us what we once were. Let's read it together, Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. There's probably things in your past that you would like to forget. If you could, there's probably some past attitudes and actions that you wish you would be able to change. Now, it's true that God does not hold our past sins against us, But what what can we learn from our past? See, Paul did not allow other believers or himself to forget the sinful condition from which we have been rescued. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Ephesians 4, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. In Colossians 3, we're reminded, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Remembering our past sin and our past disobedience should encourage us to show grace to those who are still without Christ. It's so easy to forget what kind of people we were before we were saved. And we tend to be very hard on the lost, those without Christ. So as Paul's reminding Titus, he wants them to remember that before their salvation, they used to live a certain way. Sometimes we're guilty of expecting the world to live like believers. But Paul calls us to remember our past, what we once were like. 
And remembering our, our personal failures will make us more sensitive to the lost around us and to believers alike. So Paul lists seven characteristics here in this verse of the unsaved Cretans in the past. These are also things that are true of anybody who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. First of all, he calls us foolish. Did I just lose my mic? No. He calls us foolish. We were foolish instead of sensible. We were without understanding. He calls us disobedient. Disobedient. Our first parents were disobedient to God. Being born after their likeness, we were born in sin with a natural bent away from God and away from obedience. That bent towards disobedience can oftentimes be seen in the eyes and actions of a small child when they're told not to do something. It's even in the eyes of an adult when somebody in authority tells them that they messed up. Disobedient, foolish, led astray or deceived. You see, we were actually taken in by the deceitfulness of sin. And here's the real deceit that we thought that sin, what it offered, it could actually deliver. That's the real deceit. We approach the world and, and those passions and desires and we, we feel like what sin has to offer is actually the sin's going to come through. That's, that's the deceit. That's why we're deceived. And we lived our lives in this state. We've become slaves of sin. Paul goes on to tell us that we serve various lusts, various passions and pleasures. I don't know about you, but I'm getting uncomfortable. This isn't a good thing. Paul's not describing good people. We were actually slaves to sin. This phrase, serving various lusts and pleasures, that's what it means. It's a continual slaving after something. John 8.34 tells us that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And that's what you and I were like. Where, where does a life live seeking to satisfy your lust and your passions lead us? Paul continues on. It leads to living in malice. Before their salvation, Paul reminds these believers that they spent their life in malice, which can be described simply as a nastiness, a anger, a wickedness, a cruelty. That's how you and I lived before Christ. That's what we once were like. And so we look to fulfill our sinful desires, and we, we do and go to whatever means necessary to fulfill those desires. So we lived in malice, we lived in envy, striving to satisfy those desires. We, we lived life in malice, we lived life in envy, always thinking that those desires could be satisfied, but they're never met. And life had become one mad race, but it brought no satisfaction. Remember that? Remember what life was like? Remember being foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and passions, living in malice and envy. He lists the seventh one, hateful and hating one another. That's where sin leads. Sin leads to envy and eventually leads to hatred, and their efforts only filled their hearts with that hatred. Here's the deal. Paul has just described Every one of us without a personal relationship 
with Jesus Christ. Separated from God, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what life is like without Christ. Remember that? Paul's calling us to remember that because it should motivate us to be involved in rescuing those that are in that state. Rescuing West Africans who have never had a chance to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Rescuing people in Loudoun County who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Once you were. Once you were. Now with a clearer understanding, Paul was now ready to speak about the change in their lives. He wants to be very clear about this. The reason for the change in their lives, the reason for the change in our lives is not human effort. It's not human effort. But it's God himself. Read along with me. Or follow along with me as I read Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. but for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. We would all still be in that same lost condition that Paul had just described. Let's be careful we have a very proper, clear understanding. We're not saved because we don't do the things that are listed in Titus 3.3. 3. God saves those who believe, but it's not because of righteousness that's in them. Romans 3, 21 through 24 tells us this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. It's not what we do that saves us. It's not keeping this list of things that's going to save me. It's Christ dying on the cross and his righteousness that's available through his son, Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's focus. His focus was on what God had done. And as we understood what we once were, it makes the declaration of what God has done in saving us even more miraculous. To take what is dead and to give it life. To take what is sinful and to give it righteousness. To take what's not alive and to impart life and breathe life. What a wonderful declaration. Paul makes. And he wanted us as believers to understand that our salvation 
was, was because of the kindness and love of God. Not anything about us, not because we're so special. It was the kindness and love of God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 tells us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, according to these verses that we read in Titus, this love of God appeared or came into view when Christ was sent to die for us. God demonstrated his love to the world when he sent Christ into the world to give his life as a ransom for mankind. And in verse 5 of Titus 3, it's made very clear that we're not saved because of our own works of righteousness. In fact, our own works of righteousness are declared by God to be worthless. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that our works of righteousness are like a polluted garment. Works are not able to save for two very clear reasons. The first reason is this, that we're incapable. We are incapable of doing anything that would gain merit before God. I know that's hard for us as humans to swallow, that you and I are incapable of doing anything good that would gain merit with God. The second reason is because God has set faith God has set faith as the condition whereby we're saved. John 3.16 Whoever believes. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 We're saved through faith, not a result of works. And so as we look at this picture, it's very clear that we can't do anything to save ourselves, but God has saved us according to His mercy. Mercy is withholding of what is due. So what's due for us? If we actually got what we deserved, we'd be condemned to spend eternity separated from God. But mercy withheld that punishment that was due. And grace lavished or bestowed God's favor on us as undeserving people. So enough of the negative. Let's shift our focus to talk about these possessions that are true of us as believers. We once were, but now we are. Three things I want to highlight. First of all, we are released from the guilt of our sin. We are released from the guilt of our sin. Paul declares that God saves us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the washing of regeneration speaks of the cleansing of the believer from the guilt of sin. That's one thing we're all guilty of. We're guilty of committing sin by nature and by deed. And God's washing of regeneration cleanses us from that guilt of sin. And the renewing of the Holy Spirit describes the giving of eternal life. The fact is that we're now new creations in Christ in contrast to the old life that we once lived. Once you were, but now you are. This is God's work. This is God's work, as Paul has already been clear through this text and in other portions of the New Testament, that we could not work for our salvation. 
The fact is we have been justified. This is a word from the courtroom that means to be pronounced guiltless. You see, the grace of God provided in Christ a substitute for sinful man and anyone. The one who claims that God provided substitute is released from all guilt. What's that feel like? You're carrying around guilt this morning? Weighed down by your sin? You don't have to be. We've been released from the guilt of our sin. Secondly, we are recipients of a great inheritance. We're called children of God with an inheritance in heaven. It's because of that justification that we have become heirs. We're in line for an inheritance. Peter tells us in his epistle in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, death-proof, undefiled, sin-proof, unfading. Wow. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The full possession of that inheritance is future. It's being reserved for us in heaven. We are recipients of a great inheritance. We have been released from the guilt of our sin. And number three, we are rescued from death into eternal life. That's our guaranteed hope. This phrase could be rendered eternal life's hope. Eternal life being the possession of all believers. Are you living that eternal life out right now? Are you waiting for the day that you're in heaven? Or are you living it now? That's the call for us to act on the eternal life that we have. Okay, you might be saying, okay, great, Adam. Tell me something I don't know. Sure, I understand I used to be a certain way, but now I'm a different way. Well, what's the point here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 8 tells us, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So if you don't get anything out of what I'm saying this morning, here's the one thing I want you to walk away with. The change in your life needs to be seen by others. The change in your life needs to be seen by others. That's our call here as believers in Christ. You once were... Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving lust and pleasures, full of malice, full of envy, full of hatred, but now you've been released from the guilt of sin. You're recipients of a great inheritance. You've been rescued from death into eternal life. Now live like it. 
That message should be declared and should be seen as you walk into your workplace, as you walk into your school, as you walk into your home. That should be evident that Jesus Christ is in the process of transforming you into his image. And it needs to be seen. That's the challenge that Paul is giving Titus. And he wants Titus to be committed to this. Challenging him to stir up those who have turned to Christ to be faithful to maintain good works. Again, let's not miss the order here. Paul's not saying unbelievers should be urged to do anything. Did he catch it? He's not urging unbelievers to do anything. He's urging believers. Those of us that have claimed Christ as our Lord and Savior to do something. That order is crucial. He's saying believers need to maintain these good works. Believers need to stand before. They need to preside over. They need to take the lead in doing good to those around them. As Christians, we should not be lagging behind others. We should be taking the lead in doing good works that we may adorn or put on the doctrine of God. In other words, we need to wear the truth. What truth are you wearing this morning? Are you still worried about what you once were? Discouraged by sin that is still crippling you? Or is your focus on what you now have in Christ? Is your focus on the fact that you've been released from the guilt of sin? That you're a recipient of a great inheritance? That you've been rescued from death into life? Good works are not the substitute for faith. They are to be the fruit of faith, according to James chapter 2. So I want to leave you with a few things to think about this week. See, last time I was in Peter's village, we walked around his village and he took me to a special place in that village. And he pointed and said, Adam, this is where the missionaries are going to live when they come live in my village. I knew no missionaries were going to come live in this village. He went on to say there's still lots of people that don't know Christ in my language group. You see, there's over 2,500 unreached people groups that cannot share the testimony you share. They cannot say, once I was. Because they have to say, I still am. I still am in that lost condition. I still am foolish, deceived, disobedient. Serving lust and pleasures. Living in malice and envy. Hating and hating one another. There's still people in your school, in your workplace. There may be people in your own home. There may be people in this church. 
whatever situation you find yourself in as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you're surrounded by those who cannot say the same thing you and I can say. Once I was, but now I am. So the challenge this week is to take some time. Take some time this week and thank God for what he saved you from. Take some time to maybe even jot down some things as a reminder of what your life used to be like. Once you've completed that, take some time and thank him for what you now have in Christ and what's true of you now that you're in Christ. And most importantly, after you've done those things, I would encourage you to go into your home, to go into your school, to go into your community, into your workplace, to go into West Africa and do some good for the sake of Christ. So that others may share this testimony. You know what, Adam? Once I was, but now I am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would use it to encourage our hearts, to spur us to act, action, so that we may show the world, those around us, that we've been rescued by your grace and your love and your kindness. We've been redeemed. We've been transformed and are in the process of being transformed into your image. Give us boldness this week and this year as we share you with those around us so that they too can share that testimony. Once I was, but now I am. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.